This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Good afternoon, traders, and welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by none other than Top Step Trader, which, of course, is the company that evaluates traders and backs them with their own capital. And this, of course, is the podcast where we discuss markets, futures, forex, and trading psychology with the industry professionals who know their stuff. I'm Jack Pelzer, the curator of the Limit Up podcast, and I admittedly know some stuff. Man, today we have one heck of a show for you. We'll be going inside the actor's studio, James Lipton style, as our very own Jeff Carter interviews Duke University clinical psychologist and CEO of Branku and Associates, the wonderful Dr. Mira Branku. <laughs> Dr. Branku has an absolutely fascinating backstory that begins in Romania and, well, I won't give away the rest. But let's just say that she started an amazing company and is an expert in leadership and decision-making. Also, according to my back-of-the-envelope calculations, being a successful trader is roughly 99% about psychology. So you owe it to yourself to listen to this interview. But before we begin, we have some huge news at Top Step Trader. We're turning seven years old this month, and to celebrate, we're going to be running our biggest promotion ever. That's right, ever. What does that mean? Well, you'll just have to stay tuned in to find out. We wouldn't want to ruin the surprise, like when that one guy you used to work with but don't really hang out with anymore shows up outside your apartment at the same time as you, and it's the weekend before your birthday, so you know there's a surprise birthday going on inside, and you walk in and everyone's hiding in the kitchen all quietly, but it's ruined because of that damn coworker who showed up late. Maybe this isn't the most relatable example, but you get the gist. Bottom line, we're having a huge Lucky 7 birthday promotion coming up. And you can learn more about it at TopStepTrader.com or TopStepFX.com, both websites. We'll be releasing some, let's say, special content on Facebook and Instagram, too. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Listeners, we shan't dally any further. After all, we know what you all came here for. Prepare for some real trader therapy from an actual clinical psychologist and successful entrepreneur, Dr. Mira Branku. Jeff, take it away. Welcome to the Limit Up podcast, courtesy of Top Step Trader. Today we have Dr. Mira Branku on the podcast who lives in Durham, North Carolina. She's an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Duke University. She has a business called Branku & Associates, which you can find on the web at brankuassociates.com. She was born in communist Romania and emigrated to the United States at age of six. She settled in New York and then moved to Long Island. She went to college in upstate Binghamton, New York, and now she's down in Durham. Welcome to the program, Mira. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me on. I want to kind of talk to you a little bit about being born in Romania and then emigrating to the United States. Immigration is such a big topic on people's mind. And at the time that you emigrated, Romania was communist, so the Iron Curtain hadn't fallen yet. How did that affect your life? And how does it affect your life today? Yeah, in many ways. First, it affected just how I see not just the world, but how I approach my own leadership, 
uh, style as well as helping others. So when you're an immigrant, you end up having to go through a number of developmental processes like figuring out your own identity, who you are in this new world versus who you used to be, surviving by learning how to navigate a complex new world with a new culture you're not familiar with, language you don't know, and many other things. So you have to really sharpen your observation skills to be able to understand what's happening and make sense of it. And then, of course, ideally thrive in that complex new world. And so I approach things in that way. Mm -hmm. I just want to ask you a quick question. When's the tipping point when you no longer feel like an immigrant? Or do you always say to yourself, I'm an immigrant? I mean, you've been here, you've assimilated, uh, no accent. You know, it's not like your first, you know, you are a first generation immigrant, but you grew up here. So at what point do you say, I'm no longer an immigrant? Or do you always say, I am an immigrant? It depends. And it often comes up in the same way that other issues of identity come up. So, you know, when do I see myself as a mother versus not, or a leader versus not, or a a woman coming into a room and not? And a lot of it is what I'm walking into and seeing around me, do I feel like I fit in or not and why? And uh, when it comes to being an immigrant, it's also thinking about what's happening in the world. So when we came over to America, it was back when they still had, we were political refugees and they still had agencies that helped refugees with establishing themselves. And, you know, of course we, um, you know, paid back that organization that helped us. What do you mean you paid it back? Did you have to pay to come into the United States? No, but they help you with things like food stamps, like locating or getting resources. And um, sometimes they helped with providing you with some kind of stipend to get started that you promise to pay back at some point if you can. Oh, okay. Is that Was that like a Catholic charities thing? Because I know my church, when I was growing up, took care of a bunch of Vietnamese boat people and like they didn't have anything. So they found them housing and gave them clothing and, you know, it's kind of a support group. Yeah. Yeah. This one was a, a Jewish organization, I believe. So um, it wasn't necessarily, though, associated with um, any specific temple or anything like that. But I think about that, for example, when when I think about just giving back to my own community or I see things in the newspaper about immigration issues. And that's when it often comes up. Oh, I was an immigrant. I started out this way. I remember what this was like. And so that's when that identity comes in, when either you can, you know, connect with the same experiences or you feel sort of like you don't fit in because of different experiences that you had. What did your family do in Romania before they immigrated? Uh, Yeah. So my mother was an architect and my father was an engineer. And interestingly, both of their parents worked for the Communist Party. So there was a lot of arguing about those, you know, uh, believing in versus not believing in the Communist Party and, and whether it was good or bad. Interesting. How did they get their information that would be contrary? I, I mean, I always thought that information was so tightly controlled that, you know, they didn't have access to other information. 
it was, but it, it gets in anyway. And you, you start wondering about things like, does this make sense? You know, and there's things like, um, I remember being four years old and, you know, rations for food. So the only way that you can get, for example, coffee and bread is for my mother to be on the coffee line while she put me as a four-year-old on the bread line. Otherwise, you'd miss out on one or the other. And so it's those kind of things that make you think, does this happen everywhere? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A little bit of responsibility for the four-year-old. Go get the bread for the family, okay? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that obviously shapes my, the way that I think about things too, in terms of level of responsibility. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And then you grew up in New York, which is a very open network. It's a huge melting pot as compared to other cities. Uh, do you miss New York living in Durham? I miss a lot of things about New York, especially those things that are, you know, the cultural diversity that you see there and, you know, walking around and everyone's talking different languages and it's, you know, fast paced and exciting. But you know, it was also fast paced and uh, sometimes too much and rushed. And we did have to make a decision actually about where we would go eventually to um, when we first started working after we, uh, my husband and I got our PhDs and thinking about New York and thinking about North Carolina and, you know, what, what would be easier in New York? You probably have to if you live on a professor's salary, live extremely far away and travel quite a long distance. I remember my mother traveling on the Long Island Expressway, uh, Long Island Railroad for two hours each way to get into the city. And, you know, had to think like, is that what we're going to be doing? Or maybe we live in an area that is a little bit easier to navigate while we have younger children. Yeah. It's funny because I lived in a place called Geneva, Illinois, which is about, I don't know, 40, 50 miles outside Chicago. When I first moved there, I could drive to the city in 45 minutes. I drive fast. The train would take 50 minutes, 60 minutes. And by the time I moved out, the train was like an hour and a half. And traffic was about, you know, an hour and 15. And I was spending like three hours of my day commuting back and forth, which to somebody in New York or LA, they're like, oh, that's nothing, you know. But in Chicago, we have a little different view of it because our city's a lot smaller. Um, New York's, you know, metropolitan area of what? I don't know, 10, 15 million people. Chicago metropolitan area is about eight. So it's about half the size. Right. And so it does make a difference in your quality of life. By the time we had dinner, it was like 8 p.m. because that's right. when everybody would finally get together after all that travel. Right. And interestingly, because, you know, in the trading business, if you're in the East Coast, the markets open at um, 9.30 or 8.30 if you're in the debt markets. In Chicago, it's an hour earlier. You know, so you go to bed earlier. So everybody in the East Coast watches the 11 o'clock news. We watch the 10 o'clock news. Right. It's really funny. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what made you want to take your clinical training and apply it to leading teams and teaching others? This is an interesting thing because a lot of trading is done in a team atmosphere today. And, and of course, a lot of businesses are done in a team atmosphere, of course. 
So I'm just curious why uh, you wanted to apply it to leading teams. I had an inkling. I was never really going to be a traditional counselor or therapist, even back when I got these degrees. And what I was most drawn to is sort of the, the impact on the systems level, creating new, new programs that could help a system instead of just individuals. Clinical psychology especially happens to be much more focused on the individual, although counseling is, is and especially school counseling, you need to really keep in mind not just the individual, but who is involved in that child's life that affects them, their teachers, their, the school administrators, their parents, and how the schools are run. And so that was really interesting to me. When I got my first job after I finished grad school, I was hired initially just to conduct psychological assessments at one research site, but very quickly I noticed that a lot of things could be improved by focusing on standardizing operating procedures and improving consistency and efficiency. And I also started realizing that I could also address team issues. So in what you do, do you put figure out and put in new processes that then the team installs in order to function better. Yes. That is one of the key things that I think helps leaders, number one, avoid micromanaging. Number two, improve outcomes through, you know, efficiencies and consistencies across people. And um, as an entrepreneur, it improves the ability to scale up. Otherwise, you're the one doing everything on your own and it's just you. So if you could train everyone around you to do it similarly and also create systems where there's checks and balances, it improves the entire workflow. Interesting, because I think the perception still to this day for a lot of people around sort of psychology and things like this is it's this touchy feely thing. And I'm going to go sit on Bob Newhart's couch and talk (laughs) about stuff, you know, or I'm going to deal with my mother issues, you know, or whatever. And it, it really is, I think, great psychologists like yourself do put in processes that are fail safe so that are flexible so that you can respond to situations in the way that you should respond to situations. That's very interesting. Yes. Now, you do need some level of self-awareness to know when you're the one impacting the workflow negatively, right? So that's where the individual self-awareness stuff comes in. Is Are there things that you're bringing to the table that is really not a strength and that you need to um, identify and address? or The flip to that is it's not just about improving workflow, but also um, team flow. So making sure that, you know, your team is functioning in the best possible way, their strengths are being highlighted in the best possible way. And that takes some level of self-awareness of what to look for, you know, in your team members to know who can do what best. If you don't have that, can you develop it? So so a lot of people call that EQ or emotional intelligence. And they say, you know, leadership can be learned. Certainly it can be. But if you don't have that sort of EQ or self-awareness, can you develop that? And how do you do that? I mean, you had the opportunity to do it at age six. 
but other people didn't have that opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a lot you can learn and it depends on obviously where you're starting. The best way is, you know, to do some assessment to get some feedback about, you know, where your strengths and weaknesses lie. But there's also many connections between, you know, psychology and, for example, the trading mindset and the leadership mindset. So yes. what you're doing is you're, you know, looking for and identifying trends and patterns. You're thinking about how you make your decisions. Are you making snap decisions? How are you making your judgments? Are you using one piece of data or multiple pieces of data? If you have the ability to hone close observation and, and have an analytical mind, you're going to be better at all of these things. And, you know, when you're thinking about just training, psychology, leadership, are you familiar with that term VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity? Uh, not the first word, but the next words that you okay. used, yes. So this is a, a term that um, has been used often in understanding what we are facing in the world today, in organizations and in, you know, globally, which is not a simple world, although we like to oversimplify things just to feel like we can handle it. But it really requires an ability to understand how you deal with um, volatility or chaos, uncertainty around you, the complexity in the people that you work with in yourself and the world around you and globally, and ambiguity. And that helps you improve the kinds of decisions that you make and the way that you interact with other people. And those are the kinds of things that you can learn over time and hone just like anything else. Interesting. I, I kind of want to take that concept and apply it in, a, in sort of a sort of the same direction, but a little bit differently. So in my life, I kind of seen this common thread through different aspects of leadership and ceilings. You talked about ceilings. So if, if you're trading, uh, a lot of traders hit a point where there's a ceiling and there's only so much that they can do as far as making money, make, you know, trading. There's only so much sort of they can handle. Some people call it risk tolerance, but a lot of it's mental as well. And then if you, if you look at startups, I'm a VC and I invest in startups and I, I look and certain companies will hit ceilings and they just can't seem to get out of that loop and their revenue doesn't raise. And it, it seems like no matter what they try, they can't increase their top line revenue and then the company goes busto. Can you talk about that and how what you're doing remedies that? And is there any commonality you see throughout either people or organizations as far as problems they have with the ceiling and what they've done to overcome it? Yeah. So you're right that there's different kinds of ceilings, right? There's often, since I work with, you know, especially focused on, on women's leadership and why women sometimes butt up against barriers, it's not, it, you know, there's a lot of systemic barriers, but not all of them are specifically systemic. And sometimes, like you mentioned, 
the personal ceiling as well. And it's different based on setting. But one of the questions that so so actually let, let's let's use this example because I think you mentioned this, right? So like an athlete, right? You yep. need athletes have the same thing. Yeah, they have the same thing, right? How do you grow strength and endurance? At some point you hit a plateau and you're practicing the same things and it's all you know and you've done your best to do your research to try new things, but you hit a plateau. One of the things that I do to think about my own leadership and how I grow and how to help others is to seek new opportunities that challenge, excite, but also partially scare me. And it should be outside my comfort zone, but adjacent to my comfort zone. So assume some risk. Assume some risk and know what makes sense as a risk that is outside, but adjacent to your comfort zone. So going back to, you know, the idea of the athlete, right? If you, you know, have been plateauing on your push-ups, for example, you can add a, a weight vest and, and that increases the weight. But if you go from, you know, weightlifting, I'm not going to assume I'm going to be equally great at running a marathon. That's outside my comfort zone, but it's not anywhere adjacent to it. And so what are the smaller steps that get me closer. Uh, it could be light jogging, right? Then light jogging with a, you know, weight training, then sprinting, then um, going for, um, you know, a mile, things like that. So pushing a little past what you think you can do, even though you're not sure you can do it, you might not believe in yourself, but I often, you know, try to lean heavily on my mentors and supervisors and others around me that see what I'm doing. And if I hear them say, you should really try this, then I try to shut off my own mind about like whether I think I can do it or not and say, well, if this person sees that I can do it, even if I don't believe I can, I probably should at least try because they might be seeing something in me that I don't see in myself. So you can incorporate those kinds of um, assessments from people you trust or do a little bit more official assessment like a 360 or other kind of evaluation where you ask everyone around you, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What do I need to work on? And then create some kind of strategic plan to add that. When you think, though, about like entrepreneurship, which is very different a lot of it is going back to working at the very top of your abilities. Think about, is there anything that I am doing right now that someone else can do that is not uh, reflective of all the things that I want to reach and all the goals I want to reach in my career that I know I can? So. I know I might be the only one in this company that could, you know, do a talk on specific things or provide direct, you know, executive coaching to somebody. But I'm not the only one who could manage my books and I'm not the only one. Uh, and, and there are better people than me who can do that. I'm not, you know, 
I don't need to take care of every single minor detail operationally or um, I know many people who delegate, you know, certain tasks to virtual assistants like uh, social media tasks or scheduling or things like that, that really they don't need to hold on to all of those those things. There's this great book um, called The um, E-Myth Revisited. And the E-Myth is, it's about what holds entrepreneurs back. And it's this idea that you have to be the manager, the technician, and the entrepreneur all in one. And certainly you have to you know, start out that way. But once you start hitting a plateau, you have to think about how to separate those different tasks and identities into who can do it best and what can you personally do more of better. Just a deeper question on entrepreneurship. Um, I hope the listeners don't mind if we talk about it. One of the things that dooms early stage companies is what they call product market fit, and they just can't find the right market. So how would this apply to that? Testing the same products, but in new markets is outside, but adjacent to my comfort zone, right? I have products I know work, but maybe I haven't tried it with um, this target market. And that's my next step. The scariest thing is testing new products in unknown markets. That's not a great idea. That's the kind of risk that is completely outside your comfort zone, but it's not adjacent to it. So that, that would be an analogy. Okay. Interesting. Um, I want to kind of shift a little bit. Um, you mentioned that you do a lot of work with women's leadership and women leaders. What's the most surprising thing you've learned from that effort? I interview a lot of women for my, um, my blog on psychology today. And um, there are a lot of similar themes that I had already expected, like the rampant nature of imposter syndrome among the most talented and highly trained women or underconfidence. But what was highlighted for me was that women gain a sense of power, personal power as leaders for very different personal reasons. You know, one person felt like they gained a, a sense of personal power from becoming an independent business owner who could be profitable. Another one through education and self-sufficiency. Another one through the impact that she could make through implementing a national program. Uh, another one through leading technical experts outside of her knowledge base. So probably all of these actually apply to each of them, but um, they're different levels of impact. And knowing this obviously has direct implications for companies who want to increase the number of successful women in leadership roles. Because if you think about it, it's the way that you recruit, the way that you retain and the way that you promote people. If you describe a position or opportunity in a way that's not aligned uh, with someone's personal values or what drives them, if it's much more focused on, you know, power or prestige or things that, that people don't see themselves in that role, they're unlikely to go for that opportunity. So that's kind of what I learned from that. Women are more unlikely to go for the power prestige description, you say. That's right. Yeah. As, as it's stated, because there's sort of different connotations when you think about power and leadership today and, and prestige. So let's say you had a prestigious role 
and you were a company, how would you describe that role if you wanted to attract qualified female candidates for it and not just sort of men looking to enhance their power and prestige? Right. It, it depends. I mean, I'm a big fan of, you know, uh, first growing talent from within. And if you develop your own internal talent, then if you have great supervisors and mentors and sponsors, then um, you get to know your employees and you start clearly knowing, the best way. Yeah. Yeah. And you start knowing the culture, what, the culture stays with them as they rise as well. That's right. That's right. And you start understanding what drives them, what's their motivation, um, what's their, why have they stayed with the company? What is it that they um, really love about what they do? And then it, then it's an easy way to recruit and retain uh, because you understand your people. And that's not just specific to women. Suppose, right? though, that I need to bring somebody in from the outside. How would I do that? How would I phrase it? Right. So... Obviously, you have to think about culture because you still want to make sure that it's a good culture fit, right? But think about whether there's any language in the recruitment materials that would only cater to one section of the population. There's actually some research out there that, that looked at different types of language in recruitment processes and I forgot exactly, but it was things like um, changing words like um, uh, work in a, you know, aggressive, exciting environment, um, which, you know, many women are less likely to be all that enamored with words like aggressive and risk taking. And even though they can be equally as good at that, it's just kind of the connotation. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So, uh, yeah, when I was trading... Two of the largest traders in the Eurodollar pit, one we called Large Marge, uh, Marjorie <laughs> Teller and um, Leslie Henner, they were the two of the largest traders in the pit. And they were females in a, a totally male-dominated, you know, alpha male society. So I'm curious, like, how do women prepare themselves to excel in a society like that? And in entrepreneurship, of course, they have what's called the bro culture that you hear about. In Chicago, fortunately, our community is very, very diverse and, and we don't have as much of that. But in trading, certainly, or in finance, certainly uh, very male dominated. Although I'm seeing, I'm seeing women come in and lead and become C-level executives in a lot of financial firms where 10 years ago, perhaps they might not have been. So what do they have to do to prepare themselves to succeed in that sort of environment? Yeah, so um, I'll share five things women can do in any field regardless to be successful. Excellent. And then, A list. Five yeah, things. <laughs> five, five things. And then, but then I'll, I'll share five more things that are specific to male-dominated cultures because you, you sort of need all. So the general stuff is get mentors. At least one is good, more is better uh, because people have different perspectives and what, what they can offer. Quick question on that, given the environment of, let's say, the last few years where men are scared due to legal reasons to mentor women. How do you sort of diffuse that? Yeah, I, I'm not sure, but I, I just read this really funny um, comment by somebody on social media. Uh, it was actually in a blog post that like, 
um, the men who weren't scared before are not going to be scared now. Yeah, and, right. <laughs> so so uh, it's it's the ones that maybe should be scared that maybe shouldn't be thinking about why. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't want Harvey Weinstein to be my mentor. I don't. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, no thanks. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. There's plenty of men that have been amazing mentors to women who continue to be amazing mentors to women as men, you know, I, I, just amazing mentors, period. I think what, what was interesting about that is I went to a talk by Sheryl Sandberg on her book, Lean In. This is a bunch of years ago. And she talked about how in a lot of investment banks and law firms and things like that, mentorship happens outside the office. So let's say you walk into a nightclub, not a nightclub, just a, you know, a casual bar. And there's a man, a man there who's sort of my age, 57. And he's talking to some woman who's, let's say, 28, 29. And it's actual mentorship going on. But to the outside person, what does it look like? as compared to if there was a 29-year-old male sitting next to that guy. And so there's perception issues, right? And there may be issues like maybe the wife is jealous at home or whatever. I, You know, I don't know. That whole thing is interesting. And I didn't mean to cut you off on the five things. I oh, just no, wanted no, no, to explore fine, yeah. a little deeper. No, for sure. I mean, um, that is is certainly there, but I think you put your finger on it when when you said it was – outside of the work environment. And that's what starts triggering people's like skepticism, like what is happening and why here? Why in the bar? You know? Right. Certainly it happens naturally sometimes. And that's still um, the case that that sometimes, you know, you're all in the same environment outside of work and it just, you know, happens naturally. You start work, uh, talking about work. However, the more important thing is that it's also happening often and regularly and consistently and fairly across people in the work environment that you're you're seen as you know providing mentorship to to people and you know men or, and women um on a routine basis and then and it's it not does seen have to be so it weird. does right and it does have to be one on one you can't like bring a bunch of people in an office room and and try to mentor like nine people because people have different personalities. It's a, it's a relationship. It's not sort of a seminar, right? I mean. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. So uh, I cut you off. So we should move to number two. <laughs> We've done number one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um. We have five things. <laughs> this is a very interesting topic to me. So oh, I have good. two daughters oh, um, mm -hmm. and that's great. Uh, I, I, I could go on like, and on. You know, we could have a second and third session, you know. <laughs> sure. Why not? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we talk about mentors. Okay. So mentors are the kind of people that uh, listen to, you know, you and what you're looking for and are there to support you and give you some guidance and their own recommendations. But the second is sponsors and sponsors are different. They are champions they're people who, when you're not there, they will talk positively about you. They're people who will connect you with influencers in the company, who will give you opportunities or share opportunities with you. So they're the ones that are going to push your career further. Uh, and, and both are, are helpful and important. 
but you could also do some of that stuff yourself through joining committees where you can show your skills and be recognized and get to know other leaders, which is kind of point number three. You you started asking something though about sponsors. I was just going to say sponsors are like more active. Yes. Than mentors. Mentorship is sort of passive. Yes. And sponsorship seems to be more active. Yes. But both are important. And the things that you share with your mentors might be more, you know, struggles that you have. Whereas with sponsors, they're really the ones that you want to showcase your strengths so that they could help you connect with others who might be interested in giving you more opportunities. Mm -hmm. It could be one and the same person, though. It's just that sometimes it's not. Did you ever uh, hear of a guy named, um, he's a professor of, um, I think sociology, but I, I don't know what, I don't know why he's in sociology. His name is Ron Bird at the University of Chicago, who talks about networks inside companies. No, but I have read a lot of work by Rob Cross, who talks a lot about network analysis, which is fascinating. And really yeah, it is important. fascinating. Yeah. Isn't it? It's really, and sponsors to me fit well both mentors and sponsors fit into his sort of rubric where if you're a sponsor and you're in a group and you're speaking well of this person and then you introduce this person to that group and then the sponsor leaves that person takes on the identity of the sponsor inside that group oh that's interesting i haven't read yeah that. it's that's fascinating really yeah yeah, yes. yeah. yeah 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 so you're right that networking is really critical. A lot of women um, in certain fields don't like the word networking because it sounds kind of... Yeah, it's like uh, Bumble or, or, or <laughs> yes, swipe right on this person. Yeah, yeah. like inauthentic. <laughs> and that's not what, totally. what I really mean by networking, but like developing a really strong network of people who see your work, uh, value it, and can share it with others and come back to you to... Um, involve you in things that that they know that you 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 would do great at, you know. Right, and and just for the audience too, I've got some pet peeves about networking, and one of them I'm going to share. It's networks aren't one way; they're two ways. So, in a lot of ways, to build that network, you might have to give before you get, and you might have to go out of your way to do something for that sponsor before you get something from the sponsor. And it's not like you're sucking up or anything. It's it's being genuinely concerned about them as a person. Yes. I, I wrote um, an entire blog post about the ROI of networking and creating networks in Psychology Today, if anybody's interested. it's Oh, wow. That'd be interesting. And what's the title of your blog? We haven't talked about that. It's Psychology Today, just so people can find it. It's in Psychology Today, and you could just look me up, Mira Bronku. And I think it's like the new new vision or new, um, oh, a new look on women's leadership. Oh, cool. Awesome. That's really good. Um, so mentors, sponsors. Yep. yep. Mentors, sponsors, join mentors committees. Mentors are passive. Sponsors are active. And, and then number three is? Join committees. Um, join committees. Join committees. That's part mm-hmm. of networking, networks. Yeah. And then... Four and five really start moving into especially important in a male-dominated field, but be willing to take risks even when you don't think you're ready, even if you think it's scary. 
Uh, don't let your personal mindset get in the way and be willing to apply for promotions and new opportunities and ask for stretch assignments. A lot of women think that they're going to get noticed if they just work really hard and put their nose down. And that's not often the case. People don't know what you're doing at all times. So being comfortable with sharing what you're working on, taking those risks, taking new opportunities, asking for stretch assignments, communicating with people about what you're working on. That's like, so we talked about networking being a dirty word. Self-promotion is another one of those like dirty words. Yeah, it definitely is. And so not seeing it, reframing it and not thinking about it as self-promotion, but just communicating what you're actually working on so people actually know that you've been working hard and it, and, and there's results coming from it. Yeah. And just in general, Midwesterners are not good self-promoters. Ah, yes. Not like, and that's male and female. Yes. It's definitely not like the East Coast. Right. Yes. You know, um, that's right. I have a friend, his name is Josh Brown. He's a wealth manager and he's on CNBC and stuff. And I love Josh. Josh is extremely funny and he's extremely capable, but he's a great self-promoter. I mean, really great. I wish I could do uh, what Josh does that way because he's so good at it. And Howard Lindzen is another one that I've met. Uh, He's from Canada and he's on the West Coast. So I think the West Coast and East Coast do a lot better and it's more cultural because it's more accepted and understood as you grow up. Where in the Midwest, we're kind of, you know, Oli and Sven sitting by the fence and they they don't get too excited about anything. Yeah. And it's very difficult, especially in cultures where modesty or humility is such an important value and trying to figure out like, you know, how do I stay humble, but still share the work that I'm doing so people actually know. Exactly. And just be informative. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. That's a very, very good way to put it. When you're a a woman leader, how do you foster men leadership underneath you? Or is it different? That's a really interesting and great question. And I don't know that it is different. I mean, I think every leader comes with their own strengths and gaps in the things that they need to strengthen. So the best that you can do is really identify what those are and you know, give really good feedback, but at the same time, and again, I, it, it, it's probably not specific to developing male leaders, but, but actually in, in some ways it's, it's just specific to developing leaders who are very aware of their role in their, their organization or agency or company from a broader perspective outside of them. So helping them see how am I treating everyone around me? Am I being a fair leader? Am I being transparent? Am I being open and honest in my decision making? Am I including some people, but not including others? And there are some things uh, I'm actually developing a whole set of questions around, you know, uh, helping leaders ask themselves you know, whether they're creating an inclusive and equitable environment around them, whatever that means to just to basically, so they're not inadvertently leaving people out of opportunities that would be equally qualified 
and making sure that they're treated with respect and, and valued for the same work. So it's like, what kind of feedback uh, do you give your female versus male employees? Are they similar in scope, right? Is it specifically focused on moving them forward in their career? Or do you find yourself sort of telling yourself, well, with, with the women, oh, they're not ready, but with the men, I'm just going to throw them in and I know they'll, they'll um, you know, figure it out, for example. Or are you focusing in, in feedback sessions with your female employees on just how to handle relationships, but not how to think strategically? Those are the kinds of things that you can ask yourself um, when you're mentoring and, and providing opportunities. You could ask yourself, you know, who do I share my social capital with? Are women introduced to as many influential people as men, for example? Am I giving as many stretch assignments to all the qualified people under me? You could think about your meetings, right? How many times do women speak up and when they speak up, are they listened to? Are they ignored? Are they dismissed? Are they interrupted? What happens when that happens? Is, does anybody say anything? And who takes care of the office household? This comes up often at home and at work. Good point. You know, who's taking care of notes at meetings or uh, the ceremonies to celebrate birthdays or the break room cleaning? Is it equally distributed among men and women? And if not, why? Do you feel like the way we talk about this just in general turns it into a zero-sum game? So if I give it to a woman... I'm eliminating a man. If I give it to a person of color, I'm eliminating white people. I feel like the way sort of the extremes on each side of this debate are treating it as zero sum. How, how do you make it in your organization so it's not zero sum? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And I think that the way we talk about it really is pitting one group against another as if like uh, one will lose out, right? If if one gets, quote unquote, something, which is defeating the purpose. So there's so much research that shows that when you have a much more diverse team and then, you know, much more diverse organization, you know, across all kinds of diversity and backgrounds, you have much better return on on equity and you know stocks and productivity all kinds of amazing outcomes where everybody wins it's not like somebody's losing and it's really more about you know making sure that you create an environment where the decisions that are made around you know promotions and feedback and mentorship, all of those things are transparent and it's clear and it's fair. Once you have, this sort of goes back to where we started with having policies and systems in place that people can feel like they can really go back to and rely on and trust that you're going to make a decision as a leader that is in everybody's best interest using everyone's strengths. And that's really what it comes down to. And it never gets to the point of, of one group against another when you have a fair, transparent environment and that's communicated clearly. 
Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, we I'm invested in on the board of a company um, here in Chicago called HolbergFinancial.com. And one of the decisions Joe made at the very beginning was to hire a diverse workforce. And at a board meeting, he came and he said, I'm very proud to say our engineering team is is totally diverse. So we have as many women as we do men, which was interesting because at the outset, when it was just two employees, both happened to be Joe and and Colin, who are both men, they actively went out to recruit women for tech roles, which you don't see a lot. So anyway, what one last sort of question, um, just sort of a general one. What keeps you up at night? What's your greatest fear? It it depends on what I've agreed to do. <laughs> well, the podcast hopefully I, you know, wasn't too fearful. <laughs> right, right. But it, it is, you know, the podcast was new and, um, you know, that was uh, both exciting and new. And, and so that one kept me up at night, of course. So it's, it's the risks that I take that really um, keep me up most. But also, you know, all of the possibilities out there that I could potentially do to contribute and make an impact. And I think that keeps me up at night, but it's really like uh, mulling over, tossing and turning, mulling over how best to use, you know, all of the things that I've learned in my skill set to best make an impact. And I think a lot of people could relate to that because people are really looking these days to, you know, align their values with making a difference in wherever, wherever they are, whatever they do, whether it's trading or any other industry. Another kind of quick question. Do you ever find yourself in a project where you're trying to do stuff and nothing's working and you're totally failing? Do you ever walk away from it and say, you know what, I'm just not the right person for this? Or do you keep at it? I feel like that, hap- that used to happen more when I didn't understand the right systems and to, to put in place to make it work. These days, and this is one of the things that I love to share and work with others, it is understanding the right systems to put in place, the right people, the right stakeholders, who to include, who to involve, at what time in a project cycle to make sure that it is successful instead of spinning your wheels. And I used to do a lot more spinning my wheels because I just didn't understand what it took. So you have a learning curve effect. Yes. And and I do, I'm a fairly persistent person though, but it's based on a lot of experience about what I know will work and won't. But I also hold people accountable. So most of the, the, the things that I do involve not just me, but a system of people, a, a, a group of people, and uh, we all need to work together. And so there have been times when I have not thrown my hands up, but put it back on them and said, here's what I'm seeing. Here's how far we've gotten. Here are the next steps. But I'm not getting any input about whether we want to move forward with this or not. So you tell me, do you want to move this forward in this way? If not, what information do you need to make that decision? And I will wait until then, and I won't move on it until then. 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. And I, I'd say anybody that would stand on a bread line at age four is definitely persistent. <laughs> 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 Another thing that's always intimidating to companies when they start to hire somebody like you, or let's say I wanted a CEO coach and I wanted to hire somebody like you, or a trading coach and I wanted to hire somebody like you, you're afraid that it is a money sink for the rest of your life that it becomes a fixed cost expense mm -hmm, mm -hmm. ad infinitum forever. How long can somebody expect to be engaged with you or someone like you where there's like an end? And then how do you end it and say, hey, look, at you're ready to leave the nest. Go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, great question. And it's wide ranging. And you should ask that question ahead of time because uh, yeah. there are different philosophies on this and for different reasons. So if you're seeking an executive coach because you want like a, you know, a trusted advisor to uh, lean on whenever something comes up and you want to be able to evaluate, you know, uh, with someone who's not invested in that way in the company, who's an outsider, a different perspective, that could be like a lifelong partnership that's not a negative necessarily, you know? If you have specific goals, however, then it's really more of developing some kind of contractual agreement. I'm, you know, very much about milestones and what do you want to accomplish when, you know, how long do you want to work together? And let's evaluate it at six months. And then in six months, let's go from there. Do you like where we're going? Do you want to keep going with new goals. And if not, that's fine. If you want to come back to it, that's fine. If you have new goals, great. So it's really just about really clear communication up front about what you're looking for so that you don't find yourself in that situation. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, Mira. And how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, so they could uh, go to my website, broncoassociates.com, um, or they could just email me, Mira, at broncoassociates.com. And they can also find you on Twitter at Mira Oh, Bronco. yes. I'm, I'm uh, I, on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. You could just find mm -hmm. me anywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Well, that's great. It's been a pleasure to get to know you. Um, there's so much more that we could talk about. Maybe we'll have you on the podcast again. Yeah, that sounds great. It's been fun. Thanks for having me on. Great. Thank you very much. And uh, have a great day. You too. Take care. Listeners, thank you for making it to the conclusion of the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. We'd like to thank Dr. Bronku for joining us and Jeff for doing such a wonderful job with these interviews. Once again, I'd like to remind you all that you're all invited to Top Step's seventh birthday extravaganza that will be kicking off at the end of this month. We promise there will be no clowns, there might be cake, and there will definitely be the biggest promotion we have ever run on the site. So go out there with your new psychological superpowers and get funded. We'll be back next week with a very special guest who coincidentally founded a company that funds aspiring traders with their own capital. I wonder who that could be. Believe me, having Jeff and this mystery individual in the same room will be quite the experience. So we hope to see you back here for that. And yes, we can see our listeners, mostly as small numerical changes in our analytics. But we see and appreciate you nevertheless. So join our Facebook community, check us out on Instagram, 
Rate this podcast and tell your friends. Hell, write us a postcard, and I promise that I will personally write back. I imagine our address is probably on Google somewhere. Anyway, that's all we have today for Limit Up, so until next time, namaste and trade well. This episode produced by Dante32. Futures in Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.